But as long as you get your priorities straight and understand like life is goes one way and you want to experience it a certain way, then you have to just understand a couple principles and load management is one of them. Welcome back to the Hard Bet Athletics Inside and Out podcast. I'm your host, Derek Batman. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jordan Zoror. Jordan's story is pretty awesome. He's not just some high-flying academic with a doctorate in physical therapy from New York Institute of Technology, but he's also got real-world experience that makes him stand out. Think snowboarding coaching, personal training, and working as a travel physical therapist from New York to California, and now he's shaking things up in San Diego's sports scene. But wait, there's more. Jordan isn't just about textbooks and therapy sessions. He's an athlete through and through. We're talking about a guy who dives into everything from surfing to snowboarding, cycling, Spartan racing, CrossFit, and soccer. He really gets what being an athlete is all about. Today, we're going to chat with Jordan and get into the nitty-gritty of how he blends his passion for sports and his skills in physical therapy. It's not every day that we get someone who's breaking down the walls between recovery and peak performance, and I couldn't be more excited for you to hear from Jordan. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a huge shout out to our amazing sponsor, Lucid Branding Solutions. If you're running a service-based business and looking to boost your profitability, you'll want to hear this. Lucid Branding Solutions is your go-to partner for transforming your business's online presence. They specialize in creating visually stunning media that's not just eye-catching, but tells the story of your brand in a compelling way. But that's not all. In today's digital world, having a strategy is key. Lucid Branding doesn't just throw ideas at the wall to see what sticks. They craft tailored digital media strategies that align with your business's goals, ensuring that your brand not only gets noticed, but remembered. And let's talk about leads. We all know how crucial they are. Lucid Branding optimizes lead nurture systems, ensuring that from the first point of contact, your potential customers are engaged, informed, and ready to take action. Plus, in a world driven by data, Lucid Branding Solutions stays ahead of the curve. They provide top-tier data insights, giving you a competitive edge and keeping your business at the forefront of your customers' minds. So if you're ready to take your service-based business to the next level with a branding strategy that's as smart as it is stylish, visit Lucid Branding Solutions today. That's www.lucidbrandingsolutions.com. Trust me, your brand deserves this kind of brilliance. Now let's get back to the show. Jordan Zoror, welcome to the show, brother. Thank, thank you. Uh, we've been planning this for quite some time now. I'm glad to finally be able to squeeze it in. This East Coast, West Coast thing really throws us off. Oh, yeah. Timing's definitely difficult with a uh, change in that's what I'm looking for. My brain, after treating patients, just kind of goes away. <laughs> Dude. Um, time zones. Thank you, time zones. Changing there time zones. I, I, I can relate heavily to that that feeling. Uh, I, I remember when I, and, and I know you're in the thick of it now, but I remember when I would coach six, seven, eight hours in a row and I would get done and I would go home to my girlfriend at the time. And, and I was like, I'm so sorry that I can't talk. <laughs> my brain, my brain is mush. It's wild. So I was just talking with a friend um, that lives out in California and we were 
uh, just talking about the time zone differences and how it plays out in sports, because I was complaining that when the Eagles play at 820, for me, that's like an 1130 p.m. end time. And God forbid, it's like a nail biter. I'm screwed. So like last night, perfect example, Eagles, Chiefs, (laughs) the game comes down to the wire. I go to bed and I'm like staring at the ceiling for like 90 minutes. Yes. You live West Coast. You're like, oh, it's great. It's like 820 at night. No big deal. (laughs) That's one of the coolest things I've noticed about living uh, in California when I moved here is when it comes to football season, like you're you're watching games at like 8 a.m., 9 a.m. Like you wake up and football's on, you're ready to go, which if you're one of those people who likes to go to the bar right away, that's a little tricky. But (laughs) people start going at 8 a.m. But if you're uh, trying to end early, it's a good thing. Touche. Yeah. When the worst, like the Eagles are one thing, man. They play once a week. The worst is like the Phillies <laughs> for me, like baseball, because yeah. it's like you could have three games in a row that all started at 8 p.m. And I'm like, I can't, yeah. I can't do this anymore. For it's sure. brutal. Well, yeah. uh, so before you moved out to the West Coast, you were on the East Coast. And I know this because you spent time at University of Delaware and then uh, with that, some time at uh, my gym, Hardbed Athletics, when you were part of the CrossFit Club through Delaware. So, my first, my first question I want to kind of uh, jam on you with is, as part of being in an exercise science program in a university and then getting exposure to CrossFit, what was that like, and how did it maybe shift or change your perception on uh, fitness? It was, it was cool. It's funny because, um, at the time CrossFit was still like on the up and everyone was like jumping on the bandwagon and like, Oh, you don't do CrossFit. You're not fit. You're not an athlete. If you want to get better at this, CrossFit's going to help you. And then you have academia going, that's the worst thing you can do for your body. Right? Like they're like, Oh, we don't like whenever come to lecture out there, what I was going, don't even get me started on CrossFit. Um, but I think at the time, like able to reason through, like the science of going like, Hey, there, there may, there's, there's some water, some, some weight to each of those arguments, right? Like some of the old weight to an extent each of them. So I would say from the academic standpoint, if you're not a trained individual or you don't go through the foundations or your coach did the weekend, you know, CrossFit level one and then it's like, I'm going to throw a thousand reps because I'm going to be a hard, a hard out. Then yeah, CrossFit's not the best thing, but it's not CrossFit. It's your coach and their knowledge. So if you happen to have a coach who also studied kinesiology, um, and then walk the walk, talk the talk, it's a pretty good thing. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I liken it to in the way that there, there are so many uh, dietary camps out there and, and all of them have some level of validity right? But different levels of, of application. And it, there's a, requ- there's a requirement, right? Like in the nutrition space, there's this behavioral side of things that requires this understanding of like behavioral psychology in your ability to work with clients on the deeper issues around their diet that you can't just go cut out carbs. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think the same, the same carries over to fitness. Like it ultimately does have to be diffused through the expertise of the coach. And that ultimately truly becomes the limiter in every profession. 
Right. Which makes it, which makes it tough because again, at the time CrossFit was still like blowing up and everyone's like, you got to try CrossFit, you got to cross it. And yeah, it's just like, if you have a good coach, like I said, it's a good thing. And if you don't have a good coach, it's just like, where's the standard, right? The, the standard is, is so deviated gym to gym, box to box. Um, you never know what you're getting into. So that was my ultimate drawback, especially once I left Delaware, because again, I knew, you know, we had similar educations. Um, I trust the people I was going with. I trusted my education to be like, all right, I'm doing this stuff safely and being educated on the exercise science. Like I know, you know, I knew at the time what's different between pain and discomfort injury versus you just got to push harder. Whereas I would say most people who don't have my background or your background, they don't know. And they're like, this is part of CrossFit. My shoulder is supposed to be on fire. It's supposed to want to like fall off because that's a mentality. But then they are the ones who are ending up like overdoing it. Yeah. And I'll put myself in the humble seat for a second. You know, I think I don't believe that there's any coaches out there that are maliciously trying to hurt the people they work with. I do believe that we do the best with what we have where we are, right? And and in looking back in my own journey, like there are things I, I prescribed or recommended or even did as a coach when I was in my early 20s, like I would never even think about doing now. And the problem or the the same will probably exist 10 years from now. And that's a that's growth, right? So we're never going to be perfect, but there are some kind of base principles and requirements that should be in place in order for you to be prescribing exercises to people that have a whole slew of different things going on with their bodies. Yeah, agreed. And like I, you know, couldn't agree more with that. But I don't think anybody was doing anything wrong, or that there's anybody in the CrossFit community that's doing things wrong because I think they'd be easily you know, identified and, and someone would either pull them out or they get pulled out. Yeah. Doing the best you can at the time you had that knowledge, but every day science is progressing. Like I'm sure we'll dive deeper into this, but I'm very big on education with my patients in the initial evaluation. And sometimes I'll bring up things like, you know, you have to be open to changing in your perception, your thoughts, your beliefs, and what's been instilled to us because of science changes every day. And if it didn't, if, if a patient came to me, like after they broke an arm, we'd be cutting their arm off. Right. So you have to be open that like, yeah, amputation for a broken arm is just not a thing anymore. The same as maybe heat versus ice debate, which we can dive into later. Everything's changing. So as long as you're open to that and understanding and forgiving of, you know, again, we were doing the best that we could at that time with the knowledge we had, then it's all good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and science will always continue to do out, to, to outdo science, right? That's the entire point. Um, now let's talk a little bit about you finish up your time in Delaware. Where do you go after that? So that was a self discovery time, couple of personal things I had to battle with. So I'll tell you this, well, let's talk backwards. Um, this past year of my life, I've been working on really being okay with being vulnerable with people in general. Um, thought I was doing a good job with that realized through therapy that I wasn't <laughs> and it was trickling into my life a lot. So I would say at the time, um, my, my parents split up when I was young and I was, uh, my senior year of college and after college, I was back and forth between where I was living when I would come home. And it was still, you know, 20 years later after my parents divorced, there were still issues of who's responsible and, you know, we don't have to dive into that. So my parents were moving to Colorado, my stepdad and my mom, initially I was going to go with them. A bunch of things happened where I ended up not going and ended up living with my grandma for a year in New Jersey. So I worked as a bartender as a server 
Then I worked in corporate fitness for a company called Health Fitness, where basically my job was to staff a Fortune 500 company's gym. And then from there, I worked at Equinox for two months and realized how much I hated your classic commercial gym. I was a trainer there. and But that was a good catalyst for change for me because I met a guy there who was who there there was an office space in the equinox and it was a bougie equinox it was in uh rockefeller center in new york city on 50th and 5th so like literally across the street from where they filmed the today show i would see you know a couple of those people who would like be on the news and reporting things they would like come to the gym first shower off change go across the street go to work it was pretty cool i'm not too starstruck celebrities are not my thing but i met a couple of higher up people so it was just cool to see but yeah they pull you in you know no offense to equinox but i think everybody should should know the basic models they promise you the world they're like come on work with us you're gonna make close to six figures and then you're gonna make over six figures and we want to congratulate you right away because some people work their whole life and don't even make that and you got the opportunity to make it right away but what they don't tell you is but you still have to go find and pitch your own clients. And then the time that you're pitching those clients, you're going to make $9 an hour. Right. So very quickly was like, dude, this life is just so wrong. Like it's this whole fitness industry in that realm was so wrong. But I met a guy who had an office in that gym who was a PT. And I kind of was like, all right, I already got my four year degree. I was already planning on going to like potentially med school or PA or something. And I love the fitness side of things. And this guy from a really vain standpoint was like highly regarded in the gym. All the trainers would go to him for advice. And I was like, just take that extra step. You know, because I work at in a PT clinic. Actually, I forgot to mention this for a year as an aide. And initially I was like, man, PT is crap. You're massaging people's toes and then they go off for 40 minutes with with a high school, college grad to do all their exercises and they're getting all the relationship building. But that's just one aspect of physical therapy and everything is rapidly changing, which is why, again, well, I'm sure we'll dive deeper into this later that I'm doing private practice. I don't take insurance and I work one-on-one with a patient for an hour. So they actually get my knowledge and get the full care first going off with someone else. So originally that deterred me and then seeing the other more like performance side drew me back in. So then, yeah, so it was cool. So then from there, um, that's why I started PT school, um, went through, which also, again, just, I want to call it happenstance, but more so, I don't know if you knew this, Eric, but I changed my major four times in college. I had four different majors. So I got to the point, I was like grinding all the time. Also my senior year when I was still training at Harvard, I worked 30 hours at the Apple store at Christiana mall plus leading a fraternity, 18 credits. Like I was spread super thin. So it got to a point where I was like, okay, now that I finally have a major, um, I only really care about these core classes and I just stopped putting in work for the others. So I didn't graduate with a GPA that would have made me competitive into any health profession program. In that time off, I also went on a medical service trip with MedLife, which was a club that ran through Delaware where you go to like these underserved, underprivileged, extreme poverty communities and I went to Peru for a week where I met some of my best friends there and again that just confirmed I wanted to be like in healthcare and be in a place where I can give back to the world so I basically emailed a bunch of schools I was interested in explaining like all this valuable experience I had and why I'd be a good candidate regardless of how I look on a paper with grades and GPA you know I just kept going through the loops of finding the right people and I landed an interview somehow and again I felt like how did I skate into this interview but got the interview and then somehow I, everything just kept getting checked forward until eventually I got a email and they're like, congratulations, you're accepted. And I was like, damn, here we go. Let's do this. 
That's awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I will say like there, while there are plenty of success stories of people that kind of followed the exact route they were supposed to go, I, I because of my own past experiences and also my belief that you really do got to kind of find, find your parachute in life and just take chances and see what, see what comes of it. Uh, you know, we all end up in some way or another in directions we would have never suspected. So it's interesting because in prepping for your podcast, I was going to ask, like, did you always know that you were going to be a physical therapist? And now like, I don't even have to bother asking that question. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I, I mean, so I always knew I was going to do something in healthcare. Like when I was seven, I used to walk into my grandma's house and tell her about, you know, when my parents brought home our first computer, uh, which is still crazy to think like I'm, I just turned 30. I'll be 31 in February. I can tell the story of like the first computer that came home. Like we had that big brick nineties computer. The Britannica encyclopedia was just magically on our computer. And at seven, I was going through this and looking at the body and the veins and all these things, not knowing what I was looking at, but thought it was the most intriguing thing. And then I would like tell my grandma about like this stuff I learned about the heart. And so I always knew I wanted to do something there. And originally I was like, yeah, obviously a doctor. And then, you know, long story short, after learning the schooling, insurance, dropout rates of the profession, not the schooling, like once you become that physician, what does your life look like? What does your family like look like? How do you, how old are you when you start? I kind of like got deterred and I will say looking back on it, that's kind of an immature mindset, but I still stand by the fact that I love what I do. But I figured if I was going to be a doctor, like I want to be a surgeon, like I want to save lives. That's kind of, it was in lots of ways in my life, I was all or nothing. I was like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to be the best and strive for the best. And if not, why try? Again, you probably know this, but freshman year of college, I like got on the phone and called Harvard. It was like, what are your requirements? Because I want to get started. Like, tell me what I need to do. Um, and then, yeah, so many things are, I was like, absolutely not. I just don't want to go through this process. I don't want to be one of those people, I don't want to wear a shirt and tie to work, you know, even little things like that. And that's how I landed in PT. That's great, man. Yeah. I, I, it's, um, it's obvious to me that, that it's something that you genuinely love. And, and I think that if there's any compass that we should follow, uh, it's that one. Now you moved out West and you, you started the nomadic athlete. So I, I know you do work with some general population, but I know that you very much have niched down inside of working with adventure sport athlete. What drew you to that niche? Uh, simply put, those are my passions and I can relate well to those people. And there's just a huge gap in like the knowledge and the training and then the, the actual practice of the sport. So, I mean, look at colleges, right? They're making a lot of money off like your basic field sports, like soccer, basketball, football. So they can put all this money into research and strength conditioning coaches. And they're not also doing the best job, right? Like I'll still see a lot of those people that go like, I learned this certain intensity of training in college and they don't really care. They just want you on the field no matter what the stakes are. But there was none of that education for these adventure sport athletes. So, I mean, I grew up playing all the sports, love them all, was competitive at a level to all of them. But then when I met you and started in CrossFit is after I came off doing like a 10 mile Spartan race. And I was like, this is so cool. Like I'm in nature, I'm gritty and, and you know, I'm, I'm pushing myself to a new limit and you get to interact with the world. So I was like, all right, if I identify as an athlete and other people identify as an athlete, 
but also in a way such that I can experience the world through my sport. Like what a cool thing, right? Like I get to like experience nature and, you know, it forces me across the globe if, if possible, right? Like you don't necessarily need to travel to like Indonesia to find a, a, a soccer field, but you're not going to find that specific surf wave there or like Japan has a specific snow, right? So you get to like dive into these cultures and really experience the world. So I was like, those are the people I want to connect with because my end goal with what I'm doing is to, is to be a guy that, I do the whole thing, right? You come in, we either do your prehab, your sport performance training or your rehab, but like, dude, no way am I just going to watch you train. Like I got you to this point, bring me with you. Like I want to see you perform in your natural environment and I want to do the things too. So that's kind of what led me there. So one of the things I've always found very interesting is that inside of the gym, as coaches, we are taught to prioritize and facilitate very specific positions, right? Positions as it relates to the knees when you and hips when you squat, positions uh, as it relates to like maintaining a neutral spine when you're doing some sort of like pulling exercise or hinging at the hip. When you look at sport and you were to have a photographer take pictures, right? candidly throughout the the activity that someone partakes as part of any given sport, we find that so often they have to contort or they're required to contort their bodies into positions that would be not only unnatural in the gym, but would be frowned upon, right? Mm -hmm. How do we best prepare athletes inside of the gym for the real life positions that they're and demands they're going to be given and, and put under inside of their sports. And how does that relate to some of the ways that people have to be prepared for adventure based sports like surfing or, or snowboarding? Yeah, so I, th- I think it's the, the biggest thing. And I'll probably say this a lot throughout this conversation is education. Again, you have to you have to educate your clients if you're a trainer, your patients, if you're a, a clinician, as much as you can, like my goal and I tell this to people in the evaluation is like how much of my, like I want to offload as much as my brain of my PT brain and knowledge to you as possible without you having to go through school. Because in the training world and in the healthcare world, like if we had our clients forever, that's amazing. You build relationships with them. You love to hang with them. Like they become almost like paid friends <laughs> in a sense, but you know, it's not feasible. Right. And you also hope to make them independent. So my goal for every single one of them when they're done is that they they get back on this table or in this room or in this gym with me out of a want, not a need. And that they're able to say like, I learned so much that I, that I'm so thankful that I had this experience with Jordan because now I can go to planet fitness. I can go to Equinox. I can go to, you know, Derek's gym or hardback CrossFit. And I can recreate these things without fear because I think most of what we're taught is fear based. Like absolutely no way can you have a non-neutral spine with a deadlift or a squat. You're going to die. Like that's kind of like what you're taught. Right. And it's not always true. So I would say the main thing, and this is, this is uh, something I think you preached to us is in, in the way you said it was like, training strength is never a weakness. So the main thing is education and understanding that you are going to move into movements that we can't necessarily recreate exactly in the gym. You know, when it comes to training athletes, what I'll tell any trainer or clinician who's asking like, what is the main difference is you have to train in all the planes. Like we don't just move front to back in sport. We move side to side. We cross all the directions of planes. So you should train them that way. Um, and also train them through the ranges of motion that they're going to go to. So something I learned from another mentor to me who was a a really good athletic trainer um, that I sought out mentorship from is the idea of, and you know, we learned this in school when we talked about amputations, but to bring these together with sport is crazy to me is the fact that just because you have 
a brain and a body part does not mean that they know how to communicate innately. And a great way to think about that for anybody listening is like, look down at your big toe and try and pick up just your left big toe without moving anything else. Super hard. If you don't train your feet or anything, right, you're not, you're not doing well with that. Or if I had someone, if I was assessing their back and asking to do like a cat cow or cat camel, and I said, isolate your lumbar spine, just flex and extend from there. Most people are going to be like, you know, look like the people dancing from Bob's Burgers, like properly trying to twerk. Like it's just not working because you don't have that communication. So any area, area of your body that you don't have a good neural communication or better said where your brain and body are not talking well is your risk of injury, right? You lack strength and control there. So your brain just registers that is not safe. So to train in those areas is kind of where you want to go. And then also come back to your fundamentals. There's nothing wrong ever with those. And to explain to people, we're training patterns. We're training patterns that we use. We're going to get as close as we can. If you're hiking and you slip on a rock, you're going to slip on that rock. We've prepared your body as much as we can, but understand the risks of your sport. If you, you know, if you case a jump snowboarding, like you hit what's called the knuckle, you don't clear the whole jump and you just end up taking all that force to your knee or back and you end up on your back. Like we can't prepare you for that scenario per se, but we can put as much loading on your spine and impact training and strength through the muscles in your back and hips to absorb that force to make you less injury prone. Yeah. And while there, we can both agree that there are vulnerable positions, they can still, we can still train the tissues to tolerate load progressively over time. So, so this is why you can see people that deadlift 800 pounds or more with a rounded back. And it's because they have trained those positions and the tissue to be able to facilitate those mechanics over an extended period of time. It does not mean that if Beth signs up at my gym, who's 50 years old, we're going to just be like, well, it doesn't matter. Just round. Yeah. And, and it's really like, it's funny because in PT school and, you know, I just had a, a student come in who wants to, who like pitched a proposal to shadow me in terms, uh, in exchange for some like business work when you're in school, man. And you're like, Oh, I've got this, like, I'm about to have this doctorate label behind me. Like you just want to talk in the most technical terms ever. Like you're so stoked to like preach your science. Right. Um, and know all the intricacies. But then I think you realize as you become an experienced clinician, the more you can simplify things and get rid of all those intricacies, like the better you are and the better communication you'll have. Like knowing all that my minute details and physiology and physics and all these things we learned in school is great. But at the end of the day, like, dude, I can give you like a $200,000 degree and almost like three principles. The said pr- principle, specific adaptations to impose demands. If you want to get better at something, train that exact pattern, right? Things like that are so simple that people just overlook. Simplify things and you'll actually do better. So to your point, let's say you're talking about someone who has to like internally rotate their knee under load a, a lot. We can, we can make the example of like a running back who's going to juke and cut like... If you actually rotate their knees inward and, you know, there is a school, I forget um, the name of it, but a a school of education where you can get like a performance certification through or even like a continuing ed where they'll say like, go into this like awkward valgus and load a squat because you'll end up there and that's okay. Oh, I know it. (laughs) It's like, it, it might, it might do like animal um something or primal something but they'll, oh, they'll say it's gonna drive me nuts it, it's gonna come to me yeah i actually i know some people locally uh th- that that follow them pretty closely that's that's yeah. so interesting i haven't i haven't thought about them in a while but 
Yeah. Um, and I, I haven't yet used that in practice, but I, it, again, it makes total sense. Like, so going back to what I was saying before, a couple easy principles, the said principle and progressive overload. As long as you're not doing something inherently dangerous and you progressively overload it, nine out of 10 times, unless you're completely uneducated and going, cool, Derek's coming into my gym. Let's test this guy. Let's throw 500 on his back because he looks like he can do 500. You're probably safe as long as you work up to that thing. Yeah. Now you mentioned that one of your main goals is to offload your education to your clients so that they are better suited to be able to take care of themselves over time. What are some of the the biggest pieces of leverage that you can offer for people to improve their physical resiliency? Man, the, the biggest one is just teaching them what strength is and what it's not. So many times people come in here and I go through my evaluation. So let's say someone who's injured for someone who's coming for, you know, I've dealt with this chronic thing that I've been managing and I can play, but I don't feel like I'm at full speed. Right. Um, sorry, we ask your question because I just lost my train of thought. No, you're totally fine. So what are some of the biggest points of leverage that you offer to your clients? Right. What is strength and what is not. So people will come in and they'll tell, so I like to get the full picture and then they'll say like, um, tell, I'll ask them, you know, tell me about your, your training routine. What does that look like day to day? Give me the details. Like I, I need to know that stuff. And they'll tell me what they do. And then I'll ask them, do you do any strength training? Nine out of 10 times. Yeah. I go to Orange theory five times a week and I take, uh, I take Pilates and yoga and I'm like, those are, those are awesome. Like, you know, that's great that you do this thing, but what is strength? So then I have that. There's my first piece of education. If strength is defined as the maximum of force I can produce for one rep, you can flip that and go, it's also the maximum of force I can resist on my body at any given time. So if you're talking about a 300 pound bench press, if I'm laying on my back and I push that over my chest, you can argue not only did I push 300 pounds, but I can prevent 300 pounds from falling on me. Now, what does that mean? Then we go into the next thing and go, okay, do you understand what your muscles truly do for you? Yes, they help us move like we think and magically, you know, this muscle contracts or relaxes and I have movement, I can grab a fork, I can do all these things. But the biggest thing that I would say people don't understand is our muscles are shock absorbers. So the more force you can produce, you can argue the more force you can resist. And if they absorb force and the more force you can resist and the less injury prone you are, because now your joints are just being offloaded. If you're someone who's jumping a lot, then you better have the muscle strength to eccentrically or basically load your quads in a way where as you're lowering to the floor after coming down, you're not landing on straight knees and putting pressure directly through that knee joint that your quads can absorb that force. And I'll always make this example and I'm very visual. So I'll, I'll draw something, but like you take like a hammer, and a knee. If this hammer is 10 pounds of force directly to the knee, then that's 10 pounds of force directly to the knee. If I put a little buffer in there, like a little sheet or cushion, and I tell you it can absorb five pounds, well, now you only result with five pounds of force. That's your strength. That's your injury uh, prevention, right? That's amazing stuff. You know, one of the things that it brought up for me was that sprinting is one of the best overall predictors of rate of aging. And it, and it's, it's because of everything that you just said, if you think about it, right? So it's the ability to in, uh, tolerate impact and mm-hmm. resistance. It's the ability to produce force quickly, <laughs> right? It's the ability mm-hmm. to be able to eccentrically load. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many factors in there that like you're, if you think about it, like if you watch someone who's, who's older, try to sprint, you can mm-hmm. really quickly determine their level of fitness. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting you even bring that up because 
you know, I, I have, I have a client who's my most badass client. Like he sees me just straight up for personal training before he met me, did not lift a single weight in his life. And he's 70. I have him. He weighs 135 right now this morning, just before we got on this comms, he's squatting 170. So, you know, the, the misconception of a, you can't gain strength as you age research has thrown that out the door. You totally can. But mainly what I was getting at is within his session, I'm always focusing on some sort of speed component in there because the, our body, we can't change how our bodies change over time, but we can adapt or help our bodies adapt how they change over time. You know, if, if this magical engineer created us, just things are the way they are. We don't have the fountain in youth yet. Then we, we know as much as we know from science tells us that you're, your fast switch fibers, they change or degenerate into slow twitch fibers as we age. So what that really means is you become less able to produce force or move things quickly. And now for, let's say for like the aging athlete, like what if you trip, you need to have those reactions real quick to catch yourself. Um, so I always train some sort of speaking component in there as well to make up for that. Because to your point with sprinting, like, yeah, you can totally tell when people are just Actually, a really good example is I went back to New York in October and just like, you know, being in San Diego is such a vibrant community. People love their fitness and you can argue it's, it's the weather or whatever, but you look at an 80 year old, like the 60 to 80 year old population who are like out and about walking every day on the beach. And then you go to New York where I was living, which is Long Beach, New York. And you go to the boardwalk and you see these people who are like half their age, like hunched over and barely making it like down the boardwalk without like putting their hand I gasped for breath or like their partner or wife or husband is like putting their arm around them just to walk. And it's like, again, another reason why I go into PT is to just send out this mass education that like aging doesn't need to look like that. Yeah. I think one of the the greatest assessments of that is when people have to scurry across the road, when the light's Mm. changing, Yes, you, you can tell who is doing that out of necessity and it's incredibly uncomfortable and who is doing it very casually. Yeah. So to your point with the older populations, I I was listening to Peter Atia on on one of his podcasts and he he mentioned a statistic that 70% of 70 year olds can't get themselves off of the floor. I read that, you know, it's funny because I, I had a feeling that like, I didn't know the statistic, but I knew that was a thing. And when I trained my older clients, except for Jim, because he's a total badass, I go to someone's house and I only train them once a week. You know, obviously there's different camps of fitness. You should every four weeks change your program or always progressively overload. And then there's other camps that'll say like, if you're changing every four weeks, how do you even give someone true progressive overload? What if their learning curve is longer? What if they need to just stick to a program for more time? So instead of getting super fancy, and again, this comes back to what we first said, like training strength is never a weakness. Always go back to your basics and foundations. I make their program based off what type of exercise or they're going to have to do if they had to get off the floor and I'm straight up and I'll tell them like if we're doing push-ups they look at me like you think I'm going to do push-ups I'm 75 I'm like what happens if you fall you've got to push yourself off the floor and then what is that next position that you'll get into you'll probably be in a tall kneel if you're lucky that's a lunge once you get both feet to the floor that's a squat so in this session we're training push-ups squats and lunges because it's important this is why it always equally cracked me up and frustrated me when doctors would tell people that they were no longer allowed to squat. My, and like, and my immediate, in fact, like when I first started posting to my Instagram, I made this funny ballsy post at the time. So I was still a student. Um, but whenever I hear that, I tell people to go right back to their doctor in their face and go, if you don't want me to squat, how do you expect me to take a shit? Because how do you get to the toilet? 
and how do you get off the toilet? That's a squat. So instead of all this fear mongering, and again, what we said earlier, it, it's not to their malicious intent. It's every clinician, physician, trainer, athletic trainer, you're trained in a certain school. So you're working with your tools. So something that you look at in med school is like at the end of the day, cause no harm. That's like a mantra, right? Like whatever you do, just create no harm. So if an undereducated or less experienced, and I mean experienced in athletics or training physician says don't squat, they're either being ignorant or they just don't know because they were told keep them as safe as possible. So if, if I came into your office and I don't, and I don't train, I don't know that progressive overload is a thing. And you're the physician. And I said, Derek, I hurt my back squatting. The safest thing he can say to you is don't squat. But now you're, again, doing a disservice, and which is why it's important that we continue to educate ourselves. Well, and what I've experienced myself and anecdotally have heard from a lot of others, and while I can't substantiate this, I can't substantiate this on the macro, it seems as though the, the population of the United States, as it's represented by the general public, is exists in the same in the doctor's office. And what I mean is many of them are overweight. Many mm -hmm. of them are out of shape, right? Mm -hmm. Many of them don't actually practice what they preach. And this has been a point of frustration for me is like, I feel as though if you are a medical professional, you have a duty to uphold a standard yes. of your own health and fitness. How much of a role do you believe that plays in your ability to treat your patients? hundred percent. And, it, and I had a, I had a roommate in PT school who to that point, and I won't mention names. We had, we had certain professors teaching certain things that you're like, you teach that, but you, you present in, in this physical way. And it's like, they don't add up. I had a strength and conditioning professor at one point who, you know, preached to us, like I can get any football player to add 10 pounds and shave a second off their 40 and all these things. But he's struggling to open a door just to walk in class. And it's like, why are you not doing that for yourself? And what does that say about, you know, like practice what you preach or just like, live the life you're trying to teach first like i'm super smart in textbook that's great i met thousands of people who are smart in textbooks especially like people in my class that i i wouldn't trust them maybe with my kids as clinicians because just because you can read something and figure it out doesn't mean you have practical experience but going back to that saying is my my uh roommate always used to say i'll never trust a skinny baker if you're that good eat, eat your stuff man like it's the same thing like like talk the talk and do and do what you're preaching absolutely you know i, I want to zoom out for a second because you and I, you know, collectively in our own regard have worked with a lot of different athletes at varying levels. And yeah. one, one trend that has come true for me, and I'm sure you'll agree with this is that ultimately when you zoom out is about the athlete that stays healthiest, the longest. Yeah. And, and the reason for this being right on the macro is that they're able to continually get better, even if it's only incrementally over such long time horizons. Whereas the person that sprints and stumbles, sprints and stumbles, sprints and stumbles is constantly battling back from injury and having to start from a lower place than they originally started from. Right. How do you and go I'll about educating athletes who are hungry to get better on the need for incremental improvements rather than trying to make big leaps? More of the same of keeping it super simple. So my, my thoughts are coming like full circle now where I, where I said there were like certain principles. If I gave you three of them, minus, you know, minus knowing like people's diagnoses and what would be dangerous or not, you could be a great physical therapist. And that is load management, which is what we're going to talk about right now, progressive overload and the said principle. Anything they want to do, train that specifically, that's your said principle. You know, if you're telling me like, 
people are like, oh, but I do lat pull downs. How come I'm not better at pull ups? Well, it's because it's just a different pattern. You're pulling yourself to an object versus pulling a heavy weight to your body. They're different, right? So that'd be like a specific adaptation that you're not getting if you want to do pull-ups and then progressively overload anything and load management. So I'll, I'll tell people, you know, like how, like I'll say, and, and I'll use an example again, not using names. I have a patient who's a professional skateboarder. He's young and just signed a pro deal. And I'll say to him, like, you know, how old are y'all? How old are you? And this works great with surfers too, because especially being in Southern California, California, every surfer wants to say I'm surfing till I'm 99. Like I'm going to catch that, catch that last wave into my grade. Right. So you're 20 now, right. And you want to be skating till you're 50, 60, maybe 70. You still want to like push around a board. That's 50 years. Now, what do you want that experience to be as you do it? Do you want to struggle? Do you want to, do you want to be like going all in and then in five years from now you can't do it? Or do you want to be able to like maintain it long-term? And then this kind of comes back to how I get people to pay cash pay for my sessions. But then I go, even think about if you want to live in New York city or San Diego is now the most expensive city in the country that I just found out, I could pay arbitrary numbers here, $500 in New York city. Where am I going to live? in a box probably right a literal cardboard box on the street and now that's how you experience new york city through that lens like a homeless person now if i give you a million dollars a month it's like go live in a high-rise new york city is beautiful and it seems like the greatest place and you have access to do all these things so what is your investment in your in yourself and your time and what is the experience you want to have with your activity the more you prioritize and that's not necessarily your your money but as long as you get your priorities straight and understand like life is goes one way and you want to experience it a certain way and you have to just understand a couple principles and load management is one of them if if you're wrecking yourself all the time and that's your sport which is fine what are you doing to offload that or train yourself to wreck yourself right so it's just keep those ideas in mind and what do you want to invest in do you want to like be the athlete who's strong crushing it you're the rookie of the year but you party every weekend at the club and you go i don't have enough money for recovery or for training but you have like you know, thousands of dollars spent on these things? Or do you want to say, I want a great experience in this life. I want to feel good when I get on that field, when I step on that mountain, when I paddle out in the ocean, everything costs something. So what do you value? I told somebody this the other day is like, a lot of what I do in the practice, the way I do it, without people knowing and without any formal education is it's all behavior change coaching. And I'm sure you recognize this as a, as a gym owner and trainer, as long as you can connect to that person and understand or get them to understand like why this barbell or something's like, I don't want to squat. You want me to put weight heavy, uncomfortable thing on my shoulders and sit and stand like, fuck that. That sounds terrible. But if you can, have them see the direct correlation to what other activities does this look like and and what is this the value of this squat it's prepping you to do all these things there's your win so you just have to get people to it's education everything is education well it's one of the main reasons why i push people so hard to create a life outside of the gym that is worth facilitating so in other words if you're somebody that loves to go on adventurous trips and loves to skateboard or loves to surf or loves to go on runs with your dog um, through trails, it, there, there are things that are strongly attached to your why as to why you're doing the things in the gym. Right. And then whereas the people that are purely going to the gym for aesthetic reasons, burning calories, it, it's like, it's so much easier when <laughs> the, you know, the cake shows up at work or they get, they're tired at the end of the day to skip or to make the, the, the worst of the two decisions because their why isn't tied to something that's just integral to who they are. 
Yeah. Or bigger than who they are, you know, cause like, again, it's, it's, that's literally what I get at all the time is understanding like what you're doing. Like, and you know, even for us training people, people who like have, have done a squat probably tens of thousands of times with varying loads. It's like, I have to remind myself of my why too, or I'll get burnt out. Like if I'm just going, you know, last week I hit a, again, arbitrary numbers, 500 pound squat, which I have never done. And I just decided next week I'm supposed to do 510. It's like, that my goal is just to add 10 pounds for what, who cares? But what is that thought? But then if I go, dude, well, you're going to, I don't know, go climb Everest and that required a certain amount of strength. Do you want to be stuck up there? Lift this fucking weight. Like your, your why is just that much more important. And there's this really cool, I don't remember if it's on YouTube or I found it on Instagram, but it's like a really like tear jerking video of this, this older gentleman who is, he, he's like picking up this weight or heavy box. I don't know if you've seen this and he picks it up and he like drops it and then he picks it up and he drops it again. And then he picks up a little further and he practices the same pattern of like picking it off the floor and just flatting it to his right. And then it shows at the end, he's like carrying like a, like a grandson or uh, his wife who can't move well. I, I'm butchering the video, but this whole time, like, what is this guy doing? Like, he looks crazy because they don't show the outside, but then it brings it back. He was training to just have this one experience, this one event where he had to do this one thing, but that meant everything for him and that other person. So that's, that's what you're training for. You got to remember those things. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I have seen that. It's been a minute now. You're uh, one of the things that differentiates you and I is that as a physical therapist, you also are involved in performing different manual therapies with your clients. How yes. do you balance, how do you balance prescribing strength and exercises in comparison to getting your hands on your clients for different reasons. Once you know all the things, it becomes a very simple decision. Are you working super hard and are you not prioritizing recovery load management? Um, or are you just not doing enough? So if you work in a general population clinic, you'll get a lot of people who are coming because their doctor said they need to be in physical therapy. Like they have a true injury, you know, they, tweak their knee because they garden a lot, right? And their knees always like rotated on the ground and they do the same thing over and over. And they're like, well, I can still do it, but it just hurts. I'm, my doctor said to come, I don't want to be here. My, my daughter makes me come here, right? Um, and then you have, so they're not doing enough. Like they'll spend hours on the couch and eating and reading and watching things. And, you know, maybe they'll walk their dog for 10 minutes, but they're not doing anything to facilitate their activities like we spoke about. Then you have people, like I have a guy who's trained to be competitive in marathons and wants to qualify for Olympics in 2028, who thinks he's never ran enough. And, and once he's done his miles, he hasn't done enough recovery. Like it's just a different mindset. So you, you have to understand that person. So to draw this all in, I mainly treat overuse injuries simply because my population goes balls to the wall with everything. They want to surf eight out of seven days a week. They want to ski 25 out of 24 hours a day, right? That's, that's how they interact with their life. So those people, it's education going, okay, like you, you are exercising a lot. Let's throw this up on a board though, and talk about load management. Let's talk about what stress means to the brain, whether it's mental or physical and how the brain doesn't know the difference. Those people you want to prioritize manual skills, without ever letting them get dependent on it. That's the biggest thing because I don't believe manual therapy is a be all end all. I think it's a short term thing to facilitate emotion. Once you've gotten that person to do the required activity, get your hands off them and get them moving because we're not massage therapists. We're not chiropractors who just adjust you every week and say, 
you know, hey, hey, doc, like how, how come you keep adjusting this rotation? How do I fix it? And they go, well, you come back for adjustments. That's, but also that's phasing out too. Like, and this is not to like crap on the chiropractic world. There's lots of really, really awesome chiropractors who even, if you look into this guy, Aaron Kubal, he doesn't even adjust people anymore because the research just isn't there. Or if you adjust someone, you go, cool, but now here's what you need to do next, not just hop back on the table. So it's really just put your, if, and an example is let's say I have somebody who's a pitcher and they need to bring their arm a certain degree back into rotation or generate enough force to throw it forward. If they had an injury or they're just, you know, they took the all season to bench 30 times a day and now they're like all internally rotated and can't crank their arm back. As soon as I've got them to the part where they can consistently rotate their arm backwards without facilitation, you better straighten the hell out of that and then get off the manual so they can recreate this for themselves. And that's really what it comes down to. Like, where is this person at in their either event prep season or recovery process? And knowing those demands and knowing what you need to prioritize. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good way of putting it because I, I do feel that especially in the the general population, it, it has pe- people have gotten too accustomed to oh I have this injury. I need to go to see a chiropractor or or even a physical therapist Mm -hmm. and, and they rely very heavily on like, Hey, I need you to dig in here. Like, I think I've got Mm -hmm. a knot, you know, like Mm -hmm. you hear the the typical things like, Oh, I, I really need a massage or better yet. Like I get people all the time. How do I stretch this? I'm like, that's your hip flexor and I do not uh-huh. want you to stretch it. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? And, and yeah, again, that all depends, right? But that comes back to education. What is, what is tightness and what is weakness and are they the same or are they different? So this is where I would say like having that like extra degree of doctor knowledge where you can give that education and again, education is everything's going, you know, if a person comes in and says, I feel like my hips are really tight. Well, are they tight or are they weak? And coming back to everything is your brain is controlling and deciding everything that your body's outputting. So for example, if you've ever tweaked your shoulder or had a rotator cuff strain from any sort of thing, the first thing you'll notice is you're like, maybe you get a little weakness, but also your neck and shoulder area is super tight. But why? The why is important because your brain's trying to protect you. So the first thing it does is it provides you with something called protective tension, which your brain thinks is really great. Hey, if Derek can move his arm in all this motion, but that's how he got us hurt, I'm going to tighten everything up around it so he can't move it. I just protected him. Cool, I'm safe. Hey, if Derek is super strong and can lift this, you know, barbell overhead, but that's what injured him, I'm going to smudge that connection from his brain to his shoulder muscles so he physically cannot do it. Now your brain thinks you're safe, but you've, this, this safety mechanism outlives the acute event that caused it in the first place. So where the manual therapy comes into is to say, you know, let's, let's provide a safe stimulus. And I always go back to breath work too. What is your, what is your breath saying when you're stressed and when you're calm and what does that tell the brain? So whenever I do manual therapy in someone, I make them have the intention of this is a safe space. This is safe touch. My hands may feel a little uncomfortable in certain areas, but understand they're not injuring you. Take these diaphragmatic breaths through it to send safety chemicals versus danger chemicals so going back to your your question if if you're saying we can argue with the hip flexors maybe some people are tight if they're heavy sprinters or or cyclists but maybe sometimes they're not tight they're just they work desk jobs again this is a general thing i'm not saying everybody works a desk job but just just to bring patterns into play here and maybe you're just not using your hip flexors enough so your body doesn't trust your hip flexors to be used actively so it says i'm going to 
make this neurological tightness because they're just not strong enough to support the activities you want to do. But yeah, I think, I think trust is a great word to use there. And one of the ways I think about this is that there is this continuum of trust that is taking place in communication between your brain and your musculature. Everything. So, yeah. so when you feel that things are tight, or as you mentioned, that there has been tension created, there is a distrust. You've moved mm-hmm. closer on the continuum towards distrust. And to earn trust takes time, you know, mm-hmm. especially in, in people who have been experiencing pain or discomfort for years before actually doing something about it. Right. And and that going back to the, uh, the manual therapy stuff, so I'll, I'll get people in here all the time. So building trust, right? Building trust with your body is huge. And then building trust as a trainer or a clinician, building trust with that patient client is also huge. You can be like the world's greatest technical trainer or clinician as a physical therapist, but if you're just a straight up jerk or you come off creepy or you don't allow someone to build trust with you, they're not going to get good results. So, so many times I get people come in here and I start the manual therapy and I start super light. Now I had a really good manual, um, professor, Dr. Gugliotti, if, if he ever listens to this, great job of explaining like starting light and going deep. And I was, I was like, no, show these patients that you got strength, dig in there. But why do we do that is again, what is your brain processing? If I came right into your neck and I pushed with my thumb super hard and it was super tender, cool. I look like a macho man, like I have strength, but what did your brain just register? More of the same distrust, not safe threat feed into tightness first just place your hands go super light let your brain physically trust this stimulus and then slowly work your way through because so many times people are like oh you can go harder and i'm like well i will but you but you, you got to ease into it it's like uh like a, like if you if i knocked on your door and was like hey derek i'm jordan um and introduce myself do you mind if i come in you'll probably like pull the door open a little bit and then maybe i'll stand in your door we'll have a conversation and then you'll fully open the door but if i just kick your door and i'm like what's up dude i'm here you're gonna slam that thing back on me your your brain is doing the same thing yeah and the same is true uh, well we can draw the carryover to uh, strength training in that when somebody is coming back from injury or even even if it's we don't want to stipulate it as injury and we just say there is a slight irritation right and an acute problem let's say it's it's hamstring right it's hard when you're working with athletic populations because they want to go from one to ten over the course of a week whereas one to ten needs to happen over three weeks and in the short term they recognize that as like a detriment to their training because like i'm not getting stronger but when they re-injure it and you zoom out you realize the real detriment was in the long term, because now you're going backwards. So right that you and again, this just takes us back to that progressive overlay. It's essentially the same thing, right? It's it's trusting relationship with your tissue over time. Yeah. And and again, that's, that's exactly what I have to tell people too. Because again, as as athletes, whether you're competitive or recreational, I would say most of the time, you've got a competitive mindset with your life. So if I and also some of these people have been so pulled away from activity, because they were scared. And, you know, a lot of times people need to come in here and, and and just hear like you are safe to do x and get rid of that fear in their brain where they're like well i sprained my ankle and, I've, and i don't know what to do so i just did nothing well that's a disservice to themselves because now things got weaker and tighter than they needed to but they didn't know any better now i sit there and say look at all these things that we just did in this session that you can do safely and didn't recreate pain here's your you know your exercise program over the week they're gonna be like holy shit i can work out i know he said 10 but 10 felt easy and good i'm doing three sets of 100 
and you know it's more of the same you know short-term sacrifices for these long-term benefits like zoom out this first like two week period you know understand this is gonna give you 10 years of great movement versus going all in on these first two weeks and then just always picking a scab that never heals yeah i what i want to do and i feel like we'll be you know in service of the audience is i want to talk to you about some common issues that people experience because i think you i, I would love your perspective and input and i think it, it will serve the audience well so one of the, the biggest ones i would say is lower back, right? So many people complain of lower back tightness, lower back pain. What are the do's and don'ts kind of in the checklist that you would provide people? Do directly train your low back muscles and don't be afraid to deadlift. <laughs> Deadlifting's not not safe. Deadlifting incorrectly is not safe. The same as a bicep curl, which everyone's like, oh, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. So I just went to the gym and I did a couple curls and that felt all good. But if you did that incorrectly too, with a lot of weight, you're also going to tear your bicep. So train your low back and train it directly because those muscles, again, are providing um, some sort of support to your skeletal system. They're absorbing force. I would say, obviously, seeking a physical therapist is great to get um, the proper coaching and understanding, but you know, you got to look globally, not always directly to the area. So low back pain can also come from having a not great ability, what we call the lumbopelvic control and dissociation, or just in, in like simple terms, can I isolate my low back from my hips with movement and control? And can I use them in the way they need to? So for example, if you have super tight hips, but you're a sprinter and you need to build force production through hip extension or pushing your leg behind you so you can propel forward, but your hips don't have that motion, the next joint above or below is going to try and make up for that. So directly above your pelvis, which has a really intimate connection is your low back. So if you, if you can't push through your pelvis and your low back is going to be arching to compensate and things like that. So, you know, check in with a professional, get a global look, but I would say the main thing is don't be afraid to train your low back. Nice. Well, the next one. So you, you mentioned about lifting the big toe and I feel like a lot of people be it through plantar fasciitis, shin splints, experience pain in their, their, their lower leg or, or their foot. What are some of the things that people should and shouldn't be doing as it relates to strengthening the feet, ankles, and muscles around the calf and shins? Definitely do go barefoot. Unless obviously you're walking like a super dirty area, just trying to be like clean, whatever. But there's a couple of really good Instagram accounts you can follow. One is called Gate Happens and one is called The Foot Collective. And they do a really good job with infographics of showing... Um, all these things of like why the feet are so important and and the the simplest one for for people to understand is if you took someone's shoe off and looked at their foot we should not be able to see all those like bones and tendons so apparent as we as we do and one of the things that they worded really well and i forget which page it was is if we let any other part of our bodies atrophy the way we let our feet like holy shit, would that be so unhealthy and it would be looked at funky. So modern shoes are cool in the sense that they're stylish. They have a lot of like cushion, they protect us. But that big piece of cushion, think of that as a sensory deprivation tank between your foot 
and the environment. So if you're not barefoot, it's you're never really allowing the muscles of your feet to interact with the floor to give them a stimulus to say, hey, we need to get strong because the shoe is holding it up for you the same way as, you know, if you bruise your ankle and, you know, your dad's like throw a brace on it, right? You're doing a disservice because you're over protecting these things. Now, that being said, what is a don't if you're not someone who's used to walking barefoot or in, in minimal shoes, which I don't even necessarily wear minimal shoes, but I wear shoes that have wide toe boxes so my feet can move naturally. You don't go from zero to 100 back to the basics, progressive overload. You know, if you're listening to this and you go, oh, cool, be more barefoot. Now I should do barefoot running. I'm also not saying that either. And if you do barefoot run, don't say I can run 10 miles in shoes. I should grow 10 miles in barefoot. You're going to end up with garbage feet. <laughs> They're going to hurt. So progressive overload with everything. But yeah, don't don't neglect your feet. This might be a bit of a tangent, but I think it's also very important because I get this so often is ankle stability in people who sprain their ankles. Sure, your feet muscles are important because they're going to be your first contact with the floor and they're already unloading some of that force as it travels up the chain. But back to training specificity, if you're someone who has or in, in the client or patient's term weak ankles, they're, what they're usually saying is I don't feel stable. And so you have to train your ankles for stability because a stable ankle, I may get a little sciencey here, but a stable ankle when it strikes the floor now can absorb force and, 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 you know, shoot it up the chain. Well, whereas an unstable ankle, where if, if it's not contacting the ground with stability, then you're just losing force production everywhere and you're falling to poor mechanics up the chain. Uh, so let's, uh, let's finish it up by zooming out a little bit and putting a, a lid on the mindset piece. So, you know, we, I, we didn't bring it up during this podcast, but I've talked about it at length in others with coaches and physical therapists, which is that biopsychosocial model. The psychological piece as it relates to exercise and physical health um, and, and potentially, you know, even injury, we've talked about that, that rabbit hole quite a bit. What is that mindset piece and how do, how do you see, you know, you, your responsibility or, or kind of like what position do you take in the way that you try to get people to think deeper about the role that physical fitness plays in their life? You know, I, I'll always go back to that, that paying rent example, right? What is the experience you want with this world? For example, where I live is stupidly expensive. Um, if I had like $12,000 in rent to pay a month or, and I had that income, my experience in these surrounding communities is going to be awesome. If I'm trying to move into a community where the rent is 12000 but I only have 1000 and I'm sleeping on the sidewalk, La Jolla could be the rated the number one city in the world, but I'm not ever going to experience that. So what is the experience you want? And then as our role as clinicians and trainers is you have to educate and decrease the barrier to success so that everything you do is a is in a positive mindset, unless you think they're truly doing something dangerous, but you have to just let them know that everything they're doing is building them up for safety and trust. It, it's that simple because, you know, I've been surfing for about a year and a half very consistently. Um, and before that, I had like jumped on a board a few times, right? But I, I can tell you when I first landed in San Diego, the idea of surfing a, a five foot wave is like a holy shit moment. But, you know, if I surf a one foot wave for a while and then a two foot wave and then a three foot wave, like now that five feet doesn't seem unsafe because I've practiced all the skills I needed to do with variable you know, environmental factors getting more difficult, 
And then it's it's just minimizing that ang- anxious mindset. Yeah. So it sounds like you put intentionality as kind of the center of the bullseye for people. You have to. Yeah, you have to. Because it comes back to the basics of like, what is their why? What do you want them to do? What do they want to do? What do you, what does your brain have to tell your body? And what do you have to tell your brain? I love it. Well, Jordan, yeah. tell, tell everyone where they can learn more about you, more about your business and everything that you do. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at the nomadic athlete. Um, it's spelled nomadic with a D, all one word. I also have a website, nomadicathlete.com. And if you're local to San Diego, you can come on by. My office is newly located in Del Mar inside a really awesome fitness facility called Self-Made Training Facility. I love it. Well, I know that the audience is going to take so much out of this and, and dude, it was a blast catching up with you and, and talking shop. Hell yeah, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. If you feel like the gym is one big, confusing and intimidating playground, a personalized coach from Hardbat Athletics can work with you remotely to help match your goals to an actionable plan. You'll get workout videos and descriptions and have access to coaching calls to make adjustments when you need them. Let us take the guesswork out of your fitness and nutrition. Visit www.hardbatathletics.com to chat with a coach today.